Hi, my name is Mike Sayers, as uh, you probably already know, and I'm going to be speaking uh, today. Um, I know in, in my current shape, uh, it's hard to tell. Um, yeah, right. Okay. All right. But um, this keg that I'm carrying around here used to be a six-pack many, many years ago. Um, uh, and um, I actually, for a summer job, had uh, I had a summer job as a lifeguard, as a matter of fact. Um, and uh, it's, uh, it's kind of weird being a lifeguard. Summer job, you know, you get to sit outside in the sun. You know, people are usually jealous. Oh, look at you. You look all tanned and brown and everything. And I've got to, you know, work on construction and I've got to wear t-shirts. I only have a tan from my, you know, neck up and my elbows down. And, um, you know, I'm sweating like crazy. You're up there just, you know, looking around, twirling your whistles about as much energy as you expel. Um, but, uh, you know, the, uh, the whole idea of being a lifeguard is actually a lot more difficult than, than I ever thought it was. I, I, I lifeguarded at a pool, and it was a large pool. It was about an acre of water, a million gallons. There were 50-meter racing lanes. You couldn't even go in that half of the pool if you could not swim. But, of course, as a lifeguard, you know, people didn't come in wearing badges. I get to go in the deep end or I get to go in the shallow end. So you had to kind of watch out to see who could swim and who couldn't. And very often you would see little kids who would come into the deep part of the pool uh, where not only the racing lanes were, but there were like diving boards and everything. And you would have to just be on your guard to make sure they were okay. Like the time I remember, uh, there was a little kid who was trying to swim from the side of the pool to the island in the middle where you actually would begin the, uh, well, it was like the, it was for the 50-meter racing lanes, but, but it was a pretty short distance from the side of the pool to the island, this concrete island, and this kid was having a really, really hard time and uh, going under. And I'm, you know, I saw it. Jumped into the water. You know, I could actually stand up where where he was. He was a lot shorter than me and couldn't. And uh, but he could have drowned, right? And I was so grateful that I had seen him, because there's hundreds and hundreds of kids in this pool on a hot summer day. But I had this fear of of lifeguarding in, in the in the diving well, which I did on a regular basis, like everybody else. The diving well had four diving boards, three one-meter boards and one three-meter board. The uh, depth was 12 feet. The, the drain for the whole entire pool was at the bottom of the diving well. And so all the dirt in the pool eventually made it to the diving well, so it would always have this dark, sandy kind of bottom, dirty bottom. So it made things difficult to see. And then you get, you know... Kids jumping off and breaking the surface of the water with the sun hitting it and the light refracting. And, you know, you were just always on your lookout to see who's making it, who can get back from diving in, who is having a hard time. And and I, I remember I was on vacation when I got word that a little kid had drowned in the diving well. 
daycare kid. So parents dropped him off at YMCA daycare. Part of the day was to go to the pool, and kid doesn't come home. Now, the lifeguard who was on duty was put on sabbatical because um, she was breaking down herself. Counseling was ordered. It's a terrible thing to know that if you had just been a bit more vigilant, you had just watched more closely, you might have prevented a little kid from drowning. I just can't, I just can't imagine carrying that kind of weight. And that's why lifeguarding is harder than it looks. Lifeguarding isn't about sitting there watching for no reason. You're watching for that one moment, for that one event. According to the scripture passage today, all of us have a similar job. If you follow Jesus, then you are supposed to continually be on the lookout. Jesus has given us a job. And so we're going to turn to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, starting about in the middle, verse 14, and going through the end. should be on the wall behind me, but it's a difficult passage. And so I'm going to be stopping a few places to kind of fill you in on what's happening. So Jesus begins, When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong. Okay, wait, stop right there. What does that mean, the abomination that causes desolation? Well, Jesus is actually quoting the prophet Daniel, who is predicting something that had actually already happened before the time of Jesus. And he was talking about an idol a pagan idol that was set up in the very holy place, the temple of God. And of course, the Jews went crazy. And they started a whole revolt called the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, you guys are familiar with the Feast of Hanukkah? Well, the Feast of Hanukkah actually comes from an incident that occurred during the Maccabean Revolt. And so... What Jesus is referring to is one of the most horrendous thoughts a Jew could have, that you would desecrate the holy place of God. And so he's referring to that, and we don't know what he means. The people who were listening to him didn't know what he meant because that had already been fulfilled. But Jesus is saying, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, and then Mark, the writer of the gospel, interjects, this phrase, let the reader understand. Now, maybe Jesus said, let the hearer understand, but Mark is relaying this information onto us, and so he says, let the reader understand. We're going, understand what? We don't know. We're not sure. All we know is it's got something to do with the temple, with the holy city, with Jerusalem. Other than that, we don't know yet, right? 
When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because... Those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. All right. This is scary stuff if you're listening to Jesus in the first century. Now, in very approximate dates, Jesus was born, you know, 4 B.C. or so. He lived 33 years, which means that he was crucified somewhere around, what, 31 A.D., right? Somewhere around there. And for those of you who don't know Jewish history... The first Jewish-Roman war took place from 66 to 68 A.D., right in there. How this happened was this. The Jews hated being subjugated by the Romans. We know that, right? If you've read the gospel, you kind of get that idea. And they were looking for someone to deliver them, and they hoped that Jesus was that guy. One of the reasons that he was crucified, I believe, is that he didn't follow through on their expectations to be a military liberator. He was more concerned about their spiritual eternity at that particular point. And uh, so part of the uh, backlash was that he got crucified. Now... Sometime down the road, there is a incident, actually in Caesarea, another Jewish city named for Caesar, which they didn't like either. Some Gentiles sacrificed a bird in front of the Jewish synagogue in Caesarea, and some Jewish zealots got really upset with this and they began a riot, which began a war. Fast forward to Jerusalem and you have the Roman legion there, like 500 foot soldiers and probably 80-some cavalry. And they're retreating from Jerusalem because they're getting, the populace is up in arms and it's guerrilla warfare. So they're retreating out of Jerusalem. They retreat out of Jerusalem, and some zealots wait till they get to a certain pass where it's so narrow they can't get into their Roman formations, and they destroy the entire legion. They kill every Roman except for a few who escaped. This stunned the Roman authorities. They did not believe this kind of thing could take place. 
And it takes a while back in those days for news to reach Rome that this has happened and then for Rome to make a response. And so time elapses. They send a huge force against Judea under the lead of General Vespasian, who later becomes one of the Roman emperors. And Vespasian starts wiping out Jewish towns. Finally gets to Jerusalem. And I believe it's his son Titus who finishes off the holy city. If you remember back to Mark chapter 11, chapter 12, Jesus is talking to his disciples about how the fig tree is cursed and it's going to wither and um, you've taken my house, you've made it a a den of robbers, Uh, and supposed to a a place of prayer for all nations. Joshua last week talked about how Jesus prophesied that not one stone will be left upon another at the Jewish temple. This great, magnificent, probably the most beautiful building in the ancient world at that time, Herod's temple. And so the Roman legions come against Jerusalem, totally wipe it out, destroy the temple, tear down the stones, and this prophecy is fulfilled in completion. Interesting, historians say that those Jews, those Christian Jews who remember Jesus' words from 30-some years before and fled the city actually survived. But their initial response would under normal circumstances have been to run into the walled city because there's protection there. Because not only did you have the walls of Jerusalem, but you had the walls of the Temple Mount. It was like a fortress within a fortress. And as Joshua said last week, the battle was long, it was bloody. Um, Jewish leaders inside the wall during the siege were actually fighting against one another. Jews killed each other almost as much as the Romans did finally. Uh, There was cannibalism going on. People who tried to escape Jerusalem during the siege by Vespasian uh, were crucified to the rate of 500 crucifixions a day. They would place on the ramparts they had built up opposite the walls of Jerusalem and so that everybody in Jerusalem could see these people being crucified day after day after day. It was a horrible time just as Jesus had predicted. Now, some folks believe that Jesus was not only talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but also about his return in the future. And this is where things get apocalyptic. You have words like, like, From the beginning of time, there's never been such distress, and God had to cut it short or everybody would have died. I mean, you're thinking, okay, is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem? I mean, I know it's the end of their world, I understand that, but really, seriously, like the Holocaust wasn't as bad as this? And so some people think that maybe he's referring to a future fulfillment of this prophecy yet again, that maybe the temple will be rebuilt And if the temple was rebuilt, then maybe another desecration takes place. And that armies would be arrayed against Jerusalem, 
that's not hard to imagine. You just look at modern history. How many world leaders have said they look for the destruction of the Jews, period? So we don't know. It could be both and. Sometimes biblical prophecy <laughs> be a great illustration, I think, to, to use the, the pioneers who first came to Denver. They're coming across the plains, going to go to California, going to get some gold, going to make it rich. And they get to Denver, and all of a sudden they see this, these mountains, right? And a bunch of them said, well, we're going to stay right here. <laughs> but there were some who said, well, no, but we just go over that mountain and then we'll be there, right? So they, they climb up the top of Mount Evans. Imagine this, right? Get to the top of Mount Evans, and then you look to the west, and all you see are more and more peaks. Sometimes prophecy is like that. I mean, the, the fulfillment is right there in front of you. You see, you know, 70 A.D., the destruction of the temple, the Jewish... Uh, Roman War starting in 66 to 68, and um, you're thinking, that's it. But then you get there, and you look over the top, you're going, hmm, well, maybe there's more to come, and there may be. We don't know. Let's go on. Jesus says in verse 21, At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. What's a lifeguard do? Lifeguard is on her guard. What's a Christian do? A Christian is on his or her guard. Why? Because false messiahs are going to come. Be prepared. Be on the lookout. Keep watch. Do not think you will not be tested so sorely that you, even though you've been a Christian for 30 years, might be led astray. They're going to perform signs and wonders like you've never seen. Surely God is with this person. But don't you believe it? And this is how he says it's going to happen. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will will be shaken. He's quoting Isaiah now, Isaiah the prophet, talking about the great and coming, the terrible day of our Lord. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So what he's saying basically is, look, look, It's going to happen all at once. This great and terrible day is going to happen. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from the sky. Heavenly bodies will be shaken. And then everybody will see Jesus come back at one time. So do not be deceived. Be on your guard because people will be out to fool you. 
Now, I don't know if this is metaphorical language or if this is literal language that Isaiah is using and that Jesus is quoting. It doesn't matter. What he's trying to say is, look, you will know when I come back. You yourself, you won't need to be taught anything. You won't need to read it in a magazine. You won't have missed it. You will see it. So don't be deceived if somebody says, he's me. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the anointed one. It's pretty straightforward. All right? Let's go on. Verse 28. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He goes, look, you can read the signs of the seasons. I mean, you could put it this way. I'll put it this way. You know that when deciduous trees start to turn brown and gold and red, that winter is near. Same idea, right? He's using it in a spring-summer kind of an illustration. He's saying, look, if you can figure this out, I'm giving you advance warning. So you've got some idea where it's going to happen. So keep watch. Keep watch. But then he gets more specific. Verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So if you read something that gives you an exact day, don't believe it. They're wrong. They have to be wrong. Or Jesus is not telling the truth. All right. He continues. Now, and, and, you know, some people get kind of tripped up with this, like, even Jesus doesn't know. You go, but Jesus is God. He's part of the Trinity. How come he doesn't know? It's selective denial, I think. It is, if Jesus wanted to, could he prevent himself from knowing when the day or the hour was coming? Yeah, he could do that. If Jesus wanted to, could he stop being omnipresent and be encased in flesh and blood for 33 years? Yeah, he could do that. If Jesus wanted to, could he forgo using his own power and only rely on the Father's power? Yeah, that's exactly what he did. If Jesus wanted to, could he put himself in a place where he'd be sorely tempted just like we are at every turn? Sure, he could do that. So this is no big deal, really. In some ways, what Jesus is doing here is showing us how to live lives as humans. 
He doesn't know everything. Neither do I, and neither do you. And yet he followed God to the bitter end. So can we. Be on guard. Be alert. That's verse 33. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone Watch. All right, do you think he could repeat it himself any more times? (laughs) We've got to think, why is Jesus saying this over and over again? Because it's that important. It's that important. And what's your job? Your job is to be the person at the door to make sure that when the master comes home, you know he's at the door and you can unlock it. I don't know how many of you live in gated communities, probably hardly anybody at Scum. But can you imagine if you lived in a gated community or if you lived in an apartment building that had a security person at the door and that person was sleeping on the job, wouldn't be a very good security person, right? Fact It might be grounds for being fired if the owner of the building comes in and finds you asleep. I can tell you that if I ever fell asleep in the lifeguard chair, I would be fired for good reason. Because kids drown. It's that serious. And Jesus is saying, this is super serious. This is not just about one person. This is about everybody. Everybody, keep watch. That's your job. I was thinking earlier, well, what if I'm inside, like cooking? Or or what if my job is to sweep out the basement? Well, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is, no, you're the person at the door. It's your job to watch. I wonder about the responsibility that we carry as believers in Jesus. We're the people at the door. We're the ones who are supposed to be watching. It's like a whole kingdom of lifeguards watching for the return of Christ. And when somebody comes up to us, somebody that we know, and they say, hey, you should go and hear this guru talk. He's the one. He's one with God. He's the, he's the enlightened one, the one we've all been looking for. You can say, no, that's not him. Well, how do you know that? Because I'm keeping watch and I'm telling you, Jesus is not here yet. And when he's here, let me explain, you'll know it. But the question becomes, honestly, for, for us Christians, the question becomes, Why does Jesus have to tell us this? 
I mean, aren't we supposed to be looking anyway for his return? Why is it going to tell us over and over again? And I think the answer is because it's difficult. Because it's not easy. I mean, it looked like an easy job when I first was watching the lifeguards around the pool. But when I got in the chair, it was so hard to keep my mind focused. I was thinking, boy, it'd be easier to be digging a ditch and think about whatever I want to think about than it would be to sit here always scanning the water trying to find out who's in trouble and who's not. Focusing my mind was the hard part, not thinking about the problems I had with my parents, not thinking about whether or not I was going to make enough money to pay for tuition come the fall term, not thinking about my car that had broken down and when I was going to be able to get it fixed in between the couple of jobs that I had. You see what I'm saying? I mean, focusing your mind is very difficult work. And I think the reason that Jesus says this over and over again, I think the reason that it's in Mark is because he wants us to do it even though it's difficult. What might distract us? I mean, I was just thinking, I was going, okay, you can be distracted emotionally, you can be distracted physically, you can be distracted spiritually, you can be distracted intellectually, right? Four basic kind of life areas in which we might be distracted. And Jesus is on top of the warning counterintuitive. He's saying, look, I want you to do what I say and not what you think is the right thing to do. For example, he was saying to the people around Jerusalem at the time of the Roman-Jewish War, and maybe yet again in the future, you're going to want to run into the city, but don't do that. My advice is counterintuitive. Get the hell out of Dodge. And I'm thinking, instead of running to the things that I normally run to, my life gets difficult that, that, that usually I, like I usually do. What I need to do is to keep my eyes focused on Jesus and stay alert and see what he's doing. Why does he have to tell us to, to watch, to be on guard, to be alert? Because sometimes instead of placing my hope in my marriage, Instead, I need to fall in love with God over and over again every day. See, my, my, my intellect would say, no, I need to focus on my wife. Make sure she's happy. Make sure we're doing good. But what Jesus tells me in all of Scripture is to keep my eyes focused on the Lord. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then all these other things will fall into place. I, I think that, that we look to our romances for feelings of security and for the feelings of being loved. And, and, uh, and whether you're married or not, I think what Jesus is saying is, no, no, don't, don't look there. 
Be watchful. Keep alert. Look to me. I will show you the way to go. Because if you run to that relationship, destruction awaits you. But if you do what I say, you'll survive. Instead of falling apart emotionally when something happens to us that we don't like, like, you know, we're caught in a severe tornado hailstorm, the window smashes out, I'm stuck in some road in eastern Colorado. Instead of looking and just falling apart, let's, let's remember that Jesus is here, that I'm one of his beloved, and that he's going to take care of me. Because you could freak out at a time like that, right? You could fall apart emotionally. This is why we need to be on guard. I'm talking about physically. Here's one for me. <laughs> you know, I think resting is better than exercise. <laughs> I really do. I'd rather take a nap than go and, you know, do my strength routine that Sarah Keller has provided for me. But, counterintuitive, see? Jesus is counterintuitive. No, Mike, get off your butt and go and do this thing because your eyes are on me, not on you. I know folks who, when, when life gets difficult, you know, they, they turn to alcohol. When they want to celebrate, they turn to alcohol. And what Jesus is saying is, no, look at me. I will help you deal with the issues that are troubling you. I will help you celebrate in a way that's appropriate. You'll actually feel better in the morning. I mean, maybe <laughs> instead of doing the cocaine, we just leave the party, you know? Instead of running, staying in Jerusalem, we flee the surrounding area. Spiritually. Instead of looking at the horoscope, trust God's plan for your life. It is so tempting on Facebook, because they always pop up those horoscope things. And I wish I could just block the horoscope things, but I can't, because I will block the person, you know? Or, or when I'm reading a magazine, they have the predictions in the back. I'm going, I wonder if this is close to being true today. It's difficult. It's hard to focus back on Jesus and him saying, I don't want you messing with that stuff. I want you to look to me and look at my plan for your life. Instead of... Hang out with the cool kids. Hang out with the geeks and the nerds who follow Jesus. I mean, spiritually, really. I mean, that was a difficult thing for me when I first came to Christ. I mean, I hung out with the cool kids. I really did. And they went on to be the cool adults. You know, the professionals, the engineers, the doctors, the lawyers. The... And I'll never forget... When I came to Christ, my, my group of friends totally changed. 
And I'm hanging out with people who had, you know, dropped out of high school, people who had gone to the service because they, you know, nobody wanted them at home. And these are my brothers and my sisters, and I, and I, and I actually loved hanging out with them. My, my family couldn't understand it at all, the switch. But, I mean, these were my new homeboys, and I hung out with them, and that's counterintuitive. Why was I doing that? Because I was watching Jesus. I was following Jesus. I had my eyes look. I was, I was on my guard. And what he was saying is, you're safer with these people over here. Spiritually, you're safer. And he was right. When it comes to intellectually, I mean, instead of um, reading People magazine... You know, read the Bible. I mean, seriously, Leviticus, Backbeat in Westward. Leviticus or Backbeat? You know, I, honestly, um, I think Backbeat will be a whole lot more exciting than the various skin diseases you can find in <laughs> Leviticus. <laughs> Counterintuitive. You see what I'm saying? Counterintuitive. Instead of studying whatever I want, study the things that keep my mind on Christ. The books you read, the, the movies you watch. The, and, and you know me. I mean, I'm not a fundamentalist by any stretch of the imagination. But I think there's something to this. Because apparently there's going to be a pop quiz from on high <laughs> at the end. Jesus thinks this stuff is important, or he wouldn't be urging us to prepare for it. And I don't know if he'll come back in our lifetime. He may come back in your children's lifetime, in which case the question is, are you preparing your children to be on guard and to be watchful? You see, we are a nation, a holy nation of, of, of lifeguards who are not just concerned about our own lives, but about the lives of those whom we love and the lives of those with whom we work and with whom we live and with whom we go to school. We have tasks, and our task is to stand at the door and to watch for the master to return and then alert everybody on the inside, Jesus is coming. Get ready. Be prepared. Don't let him find you sleeping when he arrives because there's going to be this giant pop quiz when the man comes around as Johnny Cash has sung. And he'll know whom to set free and whom to blame. He'll separate the sheep from the goats. He'll send his angels over the earth to gather his sheep. Will you be one of them? Keep watching. Will those who are in your household be among them? Keep watching. Keep watching. Stay on your guard. Be alert. You are a lifeguard for life eternal. In Christ's name.
Amen.